This is Chapter 34 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 34 The World's Highest Pig Farm. We hired the only guide left to lead us on our way. He was over seventy, but he could have given me nine-tenths of his strength, and still had all his age entitled him to. He shouldered our satchels, overcoats, and alpenstocks, and we set out up the steep path. It was hot work. The old man soon begged us to hand over our coats and waistcoats to him to carry, too, and we did it. One could not refuse so little a thing to a poor old man like that. He should have had them if he had been a hundred and fifty. When we began that ascent, we could see a microscopic chalet perched away up against heaven on what seemed to be the highest mountain near us. It was on our right, across the narrow head of the valley. But when we got up abreast it, on its own level, mountains were towering high above on every hand, and we saw that its altitude was just about that of the little Gasterthal, which we had visited the evening before. Still, it seemed a long way up in the air, in that waste and lonely wilderness of rocks. It had an unfenced grass-plot in front of it, which seemed about as big as a billiard-table, and this grass-plot slanted so sharply downward, and was so brief, and ended so exceedingly soon at the verge of an absolute precipice, that it was a shuddery thing to think of a person's venturing to trust his foot on an incline so situated at all. Suppose a man stepped on an orange-peel in that yard. There would be nothing for him to seize. Nothing could keep him from rolling. Five revolutions would bring him to the edge, and over he would go. What a frightful distance he would fall, for there are very few birds that fly as high as his starting-point. He would strike and bounce two or three times on his way down, but this would be no advantage to him. I would as soon take an airing on the slant of a rainbow as in such a front yard. I would rather, in fact, for the distance down would be about the same, and it is pleasanter to slide than to bounce. I could not see how the peasants got up to that chalet. The region seemed too steep for anything but a balloon. As we strolled on, climbing up higher and higher, we were continually bringing neighboring peaks into view and lofty prominence which had been hidden behind lower peaks before. So, by and by, while standing before a group of these giants, we looked around for the chalet again. There it was, away down below us, apparently on an inconspicuous ridge in the valley. It was as far below us now as it had been above us when we were beginning the ascent. After a while the path led us along a railed precipice, and we looked over. Far beneath us was the snug parlor again, the little Gasternthal, with its water-jets spouting from the face of its rock walls. We could have dropped a stone into it. We had been finding the top of the world all along, and always finding a still higher top stealing into view in a disappointing way just ahead. When we looked down into the Gasternthal we felt pretty sure that we had reached the genuine top at last. But it was not so. There were much higher altitudes to be scaled yet. We were still in the pleasant shade of forest trees. We were still in a region which was cushioned with beautiful mosses and aglow with the many-tinted luster of innumerable wildflowers. We found, indeed, more interest in the wildflowers than in anything else. We gathered a specimen or two of every kind which we were unacquainted with, so we had sumptuous bouquets. 
but one of the chief interests lay in chasing the seasons of the year up the mountain and determining them by the presence of flowers and berries which we were acquainted with for instance it was the end of august at the level of the sea in the kandersteg valley at the base of the pass we found flowers which would not be due at the sea level for two or three weeks higher up we entered october and gathered fringed gentians i made no notes and have forgotten the details but the construction of the floral calendar was very entertaining while it lasted in the high regions we found rich store of the splendid red flower called the alpine rose but we did not find any examples of the ugly swiss favorite called edelweiss its name seems to indicate that it is a noble flower and that it is white it may be noble enough but it is not attractive and it is not white the fuzzy blossom is the color of bad cigar ashes and appears to be made of a cheap quality of gray plush it has a noble and distant way of confining itself to the high altitudes but that is probably on account of its looks it apparently has no monopoly of those upper altitudes however for they are sometimes intruded upon by some of the loveliest of the valley families of wild flowers everybody in the alps wears a sprig of edelweiss in his hat it is the native's pet and also the tourists all the morning as we loafed along having a good time other pedestrians went staving by us with vigorous strides and with the intent and determined look of men who were walking for a wager these wore loose knee-breeches long yarn stockings and hobnailed high-laced walking-shoes they were gentlemen who would go home to england or germany and tell how many miles they had beaten the guide-book every day but I doubted if they ever had much real fun, outside of the mere magnificent exhilaration of the tramp through the green valleys and the breezy heights, for they were almost always alone, and even the finest scenery loses incalculably when there is no one to enjoy it with. All the morning an endless double procession of mule-mounted tourists filed past us along the narrow path, the one procession going, the other coming. We had taken a good deal of trouble to teach ourselves the kindly German custom of saluting all strangers with doffed hat, and we resolutely clung to it that morning, although it kept us bareheaded most of the time, and was not always responded to. Still, we found an interest in the thing, because we naturally liked to know who were English and Americans among the passers-by. All continental natives responded, of course. So did some of the English and Americans, but as a general thing, these two races gave no sign. Whenever a man or a woman showed us cold neglect, we spoke up confidently in our own tongue and asked for such information as we happened to need, and we always got a reply in the same language. The English and American folk are not less kindly than other races. They are only more reserved, and that comes of habit and education in one dreary rocky waste away above the line of vegetation we met a procession of twenty-five mounted young men all from america we got answering bows enough from these of course for they were of an age to learn to do in rome as rome does without much effort at one extremity of this patch of desolation overhung by bare and forbidding crags which husbanded drifts of everlasting snow in their shaded cavities was a small stretch of thin and discouraged grass, and a man and a family of pigs were actually living here in some shanties. Consequently, this place could be really reckoned as property, 
it had a money value, and was doubtless taxed. I think it must have marked the limit of real estate in this world. It would be hard to set a money value upon any piece of earth that lies between that spot and the empty realm of space. That man may claim the distinction of owning the end of the world, for if there is any definite end to the world, he has certainly found it. From here forward we moved through a storm-swept and smileless desolation. All about us rose gigantic masses, crags, and ramparts of bare and dreary rock, with not a vestige or semblance of plant or tree or flower anywhere, or glimpse of any creature that had life. The frost and the tempests of unnumbered ages had battered and hacked at these cliffs with a deathless energy destroying them piecemeal so all the region about their bases was a tumbled chaos of great fragments which had been split off and hurled to the ground. Soiled and aged banks of snow lay close about our path. The ghastly desolation of the place was as tremendously complete as if Doré had furnished the working plans for it. But every now and then, through the stern gateways around us, we caught a view of some neighboring majestic dome, sheathed with glittering ice, and displaying its white purity at an elevation compared to which ours was groveling and plebeian, and this spectacle always chained one's interest and admiration at once, and made him forget there was anything ugly in the world. I have just said that there was nothing but death and desolation in these hideous places, but I forgot, in the most forlorn and arid and dismal one of all, where the racked and splintered debris was thickest, where the ancient patches of snow lay against the very path, where the winds blew bitterest and the general aspect was mournfulest and dreariest, and furthest from any suggestion of cheer or hope, I found a solitary wee forget-me-not flourishing away, not a droop about it anywhere but holding its bright blue star up with the prettiest and gallantest air in the world, the only happy spirit, the only smiling thing in all that grisly desert. She seemed to say, Cheer up! As long as we are here, let us make the best of it. I judged she had earned a right to a more hospitable place, so I plucked her up and sent her to America to a friend who would respect her for the fight she had made, all by her small self to make a whole vast despondent alpine desolation stop breaking its heart over the unalterable, and hold up its head and look at the bright side of things for once. We stopped for a nooning at a strongly built little inn called the Schwarenbach. It sits in a lonely spot among the peaks, where it is swept by the trailing fringes of the cloud-rack, and is rained on and snowed on and pelted and persecuted by the storms nearly every day of its life. It was the only habitation in the whole Gimme Pass. Close at hand now was a chance for a blood-curdling alpine adventure. Close at hand was the snowy mass of the great Altels, cooling its top-knot in the sky and daring us to an ascent. I was fired with the idea, and immediately made up my mind to procure the necessary guides, ropes, etc., and undertake it. I instructed Harris to go to the landlord of the inn and set him about our preparations. Meantime, I went diligently to work to read up and find out what this much-talked-of mountain-climbing was like, and how one should go about it, for in these matters I was ignorant. I opened Mr. Hinchcliffe's Summer Months Among the Alps, published 1857, and selected his account of his ascent of Monte Rosa. 
It began, It is very difficult to free the mind from excitement on the evening before a grand expedition. I saw that I was too calm, so I walked the room a while and worked myself into a high excitement, but the book's next remark, that the adventurer must get up at two in the morning, came as near as anything to flatting it all out again. However, I reinforced it, and read on, about how Mr. Hinchcliffe dressed by candlelight, and was soon down among the guides, who were bustling about in the passage, packing provisions, and making every preparation for the start. And how he glanced out into the cold, clear night, and saw that the whole sky was blazing with stars larger and brighter than they appear through the dense atmosphere breathed by inhabitants of the lower parts of the earth. They seemed actually suspended from the dark vault of heaven, and their gentle light shed a fairy-like gleam over the snow-fields around the foot of the Matterhorn, which raised its stupendous pinnacle on high, penetrating to the heart of the great bear, and crowning itself with a diadem of his magnificent stars. Not a sound disturbed the deep tranquillity of the night, except the distant roar of streams, which rush from the high plateau of the St. Theodore Glacier, and fall headlong over precipitous rocks, till they lose themselves in the mazes of the Gorner Glacier. He took his hot toast and coffee, and then about half-past three his caravan of ten men filed away from the Riffel Hotel, and began the steep climb. At half-past five he happened to turn around, and beheld the glorious spectacle of the Matterhorn, just touched by the rosy-fingered morning, and looking like a huge pyramid of fire rising out of the barren ocean of ice and rock around it. Then the Breithorn and the Dent Blanche caught the radiant glow, but the intervening mass of Monte Rosa made it necessary for us to climb many long hours before we could hope to see the sun himself, yet the whole air soon grew warmer after the splendid birth of the day. He gazed at the lofty crown of Monte Rosa, and the wastes of snow that guarded its steep approaches, and the chief guide delivered the opinion that no man could conquer their awful heights and put his foot upon that summit. But the adventurers moved steadily on, nevertheless. They toiled up and up and still up. They passed the Grand Plateau, then toiled up a steep shoulder of the mountain, clinging like flies to its rugged face, and now they were confronted by a tremendous wall from which great blocks of ice and snow were evidently in the habit of falling. They turned aside to skirt this wall, and gradually ascended until their way was barred by a maze of gigantic snow crevices. So they turned aside again, and began a long climb of sufficient steepness to make a zigzag course necessary. Fatigue compelled them to halt frequently for a moment or two. At one of these halts somebody called out, "'Look at Mont Blanc!' And we were at once made aware of the very great height we had attained by actually seeing the monarch of the Alps and his attendant satellites right over the top of Brighton, itself at least fourteen thousand feet high. These people moved in single file, and were all tied to a strong rope at regular distances apart so that if one of them slipped on those giddy heights, the others could brace themselves on their alpenstocks and save him from darting into the valley thousands of feet below. By and by they came to an ice-coated ridge, which was tilted up at a sharp angle, and had a precipice on one side of it. They had to climb this, so the guide in the lead cut steps in the ice with his hatchet, and as fast as he took his toes out of one of these slight holes, the toes of the man behind him occupied it. 
slowly and steadily we kept on our way over this dangerous part of the ascent and i dare say it was fortunate for some of us that attention was distracted from the head by the paramount necessity of looking after the feet for while on the left the incline of ice was so steep that it would be impossible for any man to save himself in case of a slip unless the others could hold him up on the right we might drop a pebble from the hand over precipices of unknown extent down upon the tremendous glacier below great caution therefore was absolutely necessary and in this exposed situation we were attacked by all the fury of that grand enemy of aspirants to monte rosa a severe and bitterly cold wind from the north the fine powdery snow was driven past us in the clouds penetrating the interstices of our clothes and the pieces of ice which flew from the blows of peter's axe were whisked into the air and then dashed over the precipice we had quite enough to do to prevent ourselves from being served in the same ruthless fashion and now and then in the more violent gusts of wind were glad to stick our alpenstocks into the ice and hold on hard having surmounted this perilous steep they sat down and took a brief rest with their backs against a sheltering rock and their heels dangling over a bottomless abyss then they climbed to the base of another ridge a more difficult and dangerous one still the whole of the ridge was exceedingly narrow and the fall on each side desperately steep but the ice in some of these intervals between the masses of rock assumed the form of a mere sharp edge almost like a knife these places though not more than three or four short paces in length looked uncommonly awkward but like the sword leading true believers to the gates of paradise they must needs be passed before we could attain to the summit of our ambition these were in one or two places so narrow that in stepping over them with toes well turned out for greater security one end of the foot projected over the awful precipice on the right while the other was on the beginning of the ice slope on the left which was scarcely less steep than the rocks on these occasions peter would take my hand and each of us stretching as far as we could he was thus enabled to get a firm footing two paces or rather more from me whence a spring would probably bring him to the rock on the other side then turning around he called to me to come and taking a couple of steps carefully i was met at the third by his outstretched hand ready to clasp mine and in a moment stood by his side the others followed in much the same fashion once my right foot slipped on the side toward the precipice but i threw out my left arm in a moment so that it caught the icy edge under my armpit as i fell and supported me considerably at the same instant i cast my eyes down the side on which i had slipped and contrived to plant my right foot on a piece of rock as large as a cricket-ball which chanced to protrude through the ice on the very edge of the precipice being thus anchored fore and aft as it were i believe i could easily have recovered myself even if i had been alone though it must be confessed the situation would have been an awful one as it was however a jerk from peter settled the matter very soon and i was on my legs all right in an instant the rope is an immense help in places of this kind now they arrived at the base of a great knob or dome veneered with ice and powdery with snow the utmost summit the last bit of solidity between them and the hollow vault of heaven 
they set to work with their hatchets and were soon creeping insect-like up its surface with their heels projecting over the thinnest kind of nothingness thickened up a little with a few wandering shreds and films of cloud moving in a lazy procession far below presently one man's toehold broke and he fell there he dangled in mid-air at the end of the rope like a spider till his friends above hauled him into place again a little bit later the party stood upon the wee pedestal of the very summit in a driving wind and looked out upon the vast green expanses of italy and a shoreless ocean of billowy alps when i had read thus far harris broke into the room in a noble excitement and said the ropes and the guides were secured and asked if i was ready i said i believed i wouldn't ascend the altels this time i said alp climbing was a different thing from what i had supposed it was and so i judged we had better study its points a little more before we went definitely into it but i told him to retain the guides and order them to follow us to zermatt because i meant to use them there i said i could feel the spirit of adventure beginning to stir in me and was sure that the fell fascination of alp climbing would soon be upon me i said he could make up his mind to it that we would do a deed before we were a week older which would make the hair of the timid curl with fright this made harris happy and filled him with ambitious anticipations he went at once to tell the guides to follow us to zermatt and bring all their paraphernalia with them end of chapter thirty four